So we're going to, uh, this morning, take a hard left turn about 1,400 years from where we've been in the book of Acts, back to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible, and we're going to put in in the sixth chapter in the fourth verse. And I, I don't often title sermons, but I titled this one. And the title for this sermon is The Quest for the Best. The Quest for the Best. It's about the power of God's Word in your family and in our community and in your own life. Um, I grew up in a family of five boys. And uh, I was the middle one. Two older and two younger. That's why I'm so well adjusted. <laughs> but um, years after all of us had uh, moved out from home and we were in our 40s and 50s and 60s and, and all of that, I, I, saw, I visited my mom in, in Houston and I saw a refrigerator magnet she had. And this is a woman that's raised five boys. And, and the refrigerator magnet said this, No matter how far into middle age a mother's sons get, she keeps looking at them, hoping for signs of improvement. (laughs) (laughs) And, and and you know, that's, that's universal. Parents desiring the best for their kids. It's evident that, that we as, as family, as parents, want the best, whatever we think that is, for our children. I mean, um, this has come to light, really, and, and been illustrated recently at kind of two opposite ends of the, of, of the spectrum. Um, not long ago, there was uh, Lori Laughlin, who is a Hollywood star, who uh, uh, ponied up hundreds of thousands of dollars you know, for her um, child, somebody's, oh, alarm's going off, okay. Well, anyway, so she ponied up all this money, uh, uh, paid to have her child snuck into a college that they otherwise wouldn't qualify for. They There was bribery involved, there was a lot of money involved, there was risk involved, and you might disagree, well, I think we probably would disagree with with the, the the way that they went about it, but their motive is unmistakable. She wanted the best for her children, the best school, best grades, best opportunities, and so forth. And it's not just the Hollywood elite. There was a story in the news not long ago about uh, parents of a teenage girl that lived in Honduras. And they took their life savings and gave it to a man, they call them coyotes, that promised to be able to get their teenage daughter across the border into the United States for a better life, wanting the best. And again, you can disagree with the wisdom of the way they went about it, or maybe the fact that they shouldn't have taken that kind of risk, but their, but their motive is unmistakable. They wanted the best for their daughter. And I'm sure that you all have stories of sacrifices as parents that you've made, or you remember 
sacrifices that your parents made for you, all in a quest for the best. So it really doesn't matter whether you're a a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Republican or a Democrat, or whether you drive a Prius or a King Cab, you know, Silverado. Everyone is on a quest for the best, regardless of nationality or religion. I mean, our values different, our opinions different, everything, all these things that separate us. And my question is, why is this quest for the best for our children universal? Where does this desire come from? And I think it comes from God the Father. And so as we look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to kind of look at two verses that are in the same zip code as the instruction that we're going to get today. First in chapter 5 and verse 33. It's the last, cha- uh, last verse in chapter 33. Listen to this. This is Moses speaking to the children, uh, to, the, to the Israelites. He says, You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. And then down in verse 3, which serves as one of the bookends for the passage that we're going to look at. Again, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Here it is. That it may be well with you. And that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. God himself is clearly on a quest to provide the best for his children. And this quest that we all have as parents comes from God himself, who the Bible, by the way, describes as the father, the father from whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name. Our identity. The stuff of fatherhood, the stuff of parenthood comes from God. And he wants the best for his children. So let's read together now this passage, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 4. Here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, since we've taken a left turn and gone back 1,400 years, I think we need to just take a minute and think about who these people were that Moses was talking to, instructing, giving God's words to. Well, first of all, they were God's people. They were the Israelites. They were a weary people. They'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years as a result of their parents' disobedience that had come up to the same river, come up to the same land, and refused to go in, into the promised land. They were disillusioned. 
And like many of us, they assumed, listen to this, they assumed that their status as God's people would automatically bring them blessing and happiness. They assumed that. Now, our status as Christians means that in Christ we have been delivered from the curse of disobeying God's law. But blessing and happiness are still found in obedience to God's word. Well, they had witnessed the effects of neglecting God's word for 40 years. But they were God's people, and he, as a good father, was on a quest for their best. You see, it all begins with God's love. And because of God's love, God had called Abraham. And, and out of this one man had, had, had made him into a great nation whose people the, they were. He had delivered them from centuries of slavery. God had defeated the most powerful man on earth, crushed him like a bug, and his army when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He'd provided for him in the desert. He'd protected him. And God had even prepared a land for him. One of the commentators that I read said, you know, really, about the time that the children of Israel left Egypt, over that 40 years, God had these people that were called the Amorites, who would be the enemies of, uh, of, the, of the children of Israel. They were the people that were occupying the promised land. And you know what God had them doing? He had them building houses. He had them planting vineyards. He had them digging wells. All so that he could kick them out and bring his children in. Now, we should note something here that's obvious, right? The God does not need to be cajoled or manipulated to come join in your quest for the best. As our good father, he's way out in front. Way out in front. Before our daughter Linda was born, this is before, well before our daughter Linda was born, we, we had a room all prepared for her. We had it freshly painted with a little flower mural and a new crib and stuffed animals and her own little blankie before she even showed up. All that before she was born. And if we as parents, out of love, have gone to such preparations, imagine, imagine what God has done to provide the best. And the really good news about this passage is that, is that God has revealed how we should respond to his quest for our best. He's made it clear what we need to do to actually experience it, and to live in it, and enjoy it, and rest in it. It's simple. And here it is. Love God and live his word. That's what this passage says. Love God, verse 4 and 5. Live his word, verses 6 through 9. And those are really two sides of the same coin. Now, the, the passage that we come up to here where it starts out says, Hear, O Israel, is called the Shema, which in Hebrew, I'm told, I'm not a Hebrew guy, I'm told means hear or listen or more than that. It's kind of heed, really is what it is. And it's th this is such an important part of Scripture that every Orthodox Jew from that day to this one repeats that prayer once in the morning 
And it's the last prayer said it in the evening. And on the most important day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur, after all the prayers, after all the ceremonies, after all the things commemorating God, this is the last prayer that said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Now, by saying that, he's not just saying hear the sound, but contemplate. Contemplate God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Meditate. Soak in. You can call it God-mindedness if you want to. First things first. God and who is what, what he is and what he's like. He says, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but he says, God, Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh. That harkens back to the God's introduction of himself formally to humanity from the burning bush when he spoke to Moses. He said a word very similar to this. I am that I am. And in this one name, God reveals that he is self-existent. And it goes on. I mean, self-existent, he's not dependent on anybody. He's not dependent on anything. That he exists in and of himself, that he never changes. Wow! That's not like anything or anyone. And then he goes on further. He says, the Lord, your, the God, your Lord, which is a, a masculine plural Elohim, which is really weird because it is a plural word that God exists in community. That's how God is. He's, he's not a, a one person. He's more persons than that. Now, of course, we know as, a, as the Bible, as Revelation goes on, that that makes room, if you will, or the Trinity explains in part that self-revelation. And you know, God is saying, look, it's just in this short statement, he's saying, God is not like the gods that you're going to go into, just like, because when they crossed the river and went into the promised land, they were going to go into a land that was full of gods. I mean, there were territorial gods, gods of the mountains, gods of the plains, gods of the valleys. There were activity gods. There were gods that were in charge of war. There were gods that were in charge of agriculture. There were gods in charge of fertility. God's saying he's one God. And he's our God. He's not like those gods. He's not like the gods that are right outside the door here. He's one. And he's our God. God's not even like us. He's holy and he's pure. He's above and he's higher and he's greater. So the first important thing is to contemplate who God is. This is the, this is the key, right? And our response to the quest of the best is who God is and what he's about. Because if we get God wrong or even get God in the wrong place, it doesn't matter what else in life you get right. It's that important. He's the source, the center, the purpose, the cause, the end of all things. It's about him. So, my well-being and your well-being does not begin with a focus on who I am and what I need, but contemplating who God is and what he's like.
The God-blessed life is theocentric, that is, God-centered. It's not selfocentric. It's not childocentric. It's not needocentric. God's revelation of himself is the center from which everything else flows. About a hundred years after the time that Jesus walked the earth, there was a a Greco-Roman guy by the name of Ptolemy. There's a P in front of it. It's it's pronounced Ptolemy, but I'm not going to tell you again how to pronounce it. So... So, so anyway, so Ptolemy was a mathematician and an astronomer, and basically what Ptolemy did was he just formulated what everybody thought. I mean, he thought, you know, since you see the sun come up and the sun go around and go down like that, that the earth must be the center of the universe. I mean, everybody thought that, and so he started working his mathematical formulas and all that. And, and you know, for 1,500 years geocentrism, or that the earth is the center, was the accepted dogma. It was the truth. The only problem was it didn't work. When Ptolemy was trying to make all of his mathematical calculations, the planets would always be in the wrong places. The seasons were messed up. The years were messed up. And they kept trying to tweak it and tweak it and tweak it, and it just wouldn't work out. And then a fellow by the name of Nikolai Copernicus came along. And he... Started, he was also a mathematician and an astronomer. And he began with the assumption that the sun is the center of the universe. And he began his mathematical calculations and so forth and so on. And guess what? It all worked out. It all worked out. And that's the way it is because he had the right center. The, the, his, his center was the true center. A God-centered orientation is the foundation of our quest for the best. And, you know, like Copernicus, who thought everybody thought was a wacko because he rejected the center, which everyone else assumed. It's just like the Christian who rejects whatever else, everyone else assumes. That it's all about you, that you're the center, that you're sovereign. It's about your choices, and you have the power to make it happen. And in Ptolemy's system, just like the world around us, it doesn't work out. Happiness eludes us and disillusionment sets in because we have self at the center instead of God. And that's true even for Christians. The center is who God is and what he has done. So if contemplating who God is causes, should cause us to respond by dedication of our life to a loving God. And that's verse 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. You know, the Word <laughs> teaches us a lot of things, but it teaches us two really important things. There's nowhere else that you're going to be confronted with the absolute necessity of dedicating your life to loving God. There's no other place you're going to get it. You're also not going to get anywhere else what it means to love God. A lot of people set off on, you know, their ideas and their intuitions about what loving God is like. Well, God wants me happy, so I'm going to do what makes me happy, and therefore that's going to be loving God. That kind of thing. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience to commandments is what love looks like. But obedience is not the goal. Love is the goal. Loving God. And obedience is the means or expression of that. You know, we are made in God's image. We know that. And as such, we're lovers. We're inveterate lovers. We're going to love somebody. You know, the Bible doesn't say you need to love because we're loving. The Bible just tells us who to love. Every one of us give ourselves, or you could say love, something. We sacrifice to something. And the Bible says that we become like what we worship and what we love. problem is in John chapter 3 is this, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Verse 6 tells us that this command to love God must reside in our hearts. You see this? This command shall be in your hearts. The command and control center of our lives. The command to love God must not just float around in the periphery of our lives for us to lay hold of it from time to time, but reside on our hearts. It must preside over our hearts. As the man says, the Ten Commandments aren't the Ten Suggestions. God's commands, His Word must continually override, overrule, supersede, outweigh any values or techniques, paths to self-fulfillment that the world and our own sinful natures continually seduce us with. And in our families, the word can't be just a passenger on the plane. It must be the pilot. Contemplate, dedicate, verse 7, educate. Educate. You shall teach them diligently, it says, to your children. You know, for God's blessing to be sustainable to generations, it must be transmitted from generation to generation. We can thank our old friend Billy Graham for reminding us that God doesn't have any grandchildren. They all have to come to them to Him on their own. And the, the teaching, where, where it says to teach him diligently, is a Hebrew expression for just keep repeating, keep repeating scriptures, his commands, with the goal of love in mind, the goal of loving God. I remember when our son, first son, you know, the one you experiment on, uh, was, was about seven that we got a hold of this uh, this, this mnemonic device, thing, things that just help you remember, okay? A, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. C, children obey your parents. D, depart from evil and do good. E, even a child is known by his own. And so forth and so on. Now, I'm not sure what kind of impression that had on my son, but it obviously had an impression on me because... You know, 40-some years later, I can still remember it. But children have an incredible ability to remember 
when they're young. Get the data on the hard drive. Your parents. It'll preach to them for the rest of their lives. One of my mother's favorite stories is, again, five little boys. And she was a new Christian at the time, I think in her late 20s. And uh, in our household, she put the books of the Bible, right? Printed them out on a list and put them right across from the potty. <laughs> and our job, our task as children was to was to memorize those. And, and actually, she wanted us to read them out loud. And so some of her favorite stories are from the kitchen listening to something sound like this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. <laughs> Input the data on the hard drive. Teach them about Jesus, that Jesus is the hero from beginning to end. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And the goal, folks, of teaching our children is not just for them to behave better. In other words, the goal is not simply confirmation. There's some of that required too, right? The goal is not confirmation, but transformation of the heart. Your job as parents is to do all you can like this in, in providing the, uh, on your quest for your best for your children to do all you can to transform little sinners, into God-worshippers. That's a big jump. And only the Word has the power to inform and to transform it. By the way, I want to add this. Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So I want to ask a question. Whose responsibility is it that children are trained up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Whose? Fathers. Now, does that mean that the task can't be shared by mother or by the youth workers at the church or by camp in the summer or by other means that God's given you? The task can be shared. The responsibility cannot. It's your responsibility, fathers, to see that it gets done. Educate, saturate. Saturate life with the Word. It says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, now talking is different than teaching. Teaching is kind of this thing. It's kind of repeating, getting, getting the data on the hard drive. But talk is different. It's about discussion in the home. And, and you should think of your home as kind of a laboratory of life. The place where the data is applied or where children learn to apply it. They apply the Scriptures to life, addressing the human condition. Because you know, kids, children struggle 
feelings of inadequacy and rejection and failure and disappointment and all of that. I remember one of the first discussions, well, long discussions I had with my daughter was when we were on a trip. And she she was in seventh, seventh grade, I think. And uh, we talked for like three hours. And she, the way that it opened up was she said, Daddy, my friends at school formed a club against me. And so we had an opportunity to listen, to talk about what it means to be valued and loved by God, and how God and His faithfulness can get us through tough times. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's the human issues. And parents, you need to talk and, and, and apply the Scriptures to your kids and also the pressure of competing worldviews. On racism, gender, sexuality, economics, environmentalism, marriage, family, government, religion, and politics. Young people need to know, does the Bible even speak to these things? Or is this stuff over here just stuff? If children aren't taught how, the Word of God speaks with authority on the issues of the life. They're sitting ducks. So it's not really a wonder, is it, that George Barna, who measures things and takes polls, particularly about things Christian, uh, says that there's only 17% of children have any kind of Christian worldview. That's less than 2 out of 10. In a group this size, that would be about 7 or 8. And the other thing that maybe shouldn't be surprising is that the ratio is same with the parents. The worldview, the talking, the discussing, the saturating life with the Word of God is so important. You need to encourage these discussions, parents. You need to make it safe for your children to bring them up. Because too often... The message of something that really ugly that gets drug into the house is, you know what, Johnny? The Bible condemns that and we just don't talk about it. But we need to be talking about it. Educate and finally regulate. Regulate. Verse 8. See this? You shall bind them, this is his commandments, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Regulate. We must allow the God to the Word of God to regulate our lives. You know, the Jews actually put little boxes with the Ten Commandments on their their forearms, and back in the day, they'd even put them across their forehead to literally to to literally be in obedience to this. But it's really a, a, a really a brilliant word picture, isn't it? It's stunning that the Word of God bound on our hands is to regulate what we do. And the Word of God bound on our foreheads is to control our thoughts. Binding, regulating our thoughts. Because, you know, you cannot 
teach children to submit to God unless you do. It's not just a matter of self-discipline, but of loving God and acknowledging the rule of His Word in our lives. I want to say this. I think you know it. I do, painfully. That hypocrisy in the parents is probably the largest single roadblock to the transmission of, of the faith from one generation to the next. How they see the God, the Word of God regulating your life will either confirm what's being taught or destroy it or even worse, make it irrelevant. You can't transmit what you don't love. Or put a different way, as parents, we are transmitting what we do love. Your children need to see the Word of God transforming your life. They need to taste of God's goodness in your life. It should be attractive because God's attractive. They need to see sacrifice, forgiveness, mercy, confession. And in my case, my children desperately needed to see God subduing anger in me. Because Lord knows they'd suffered from it. And if they didn't see the Word of God regulating me, bringing me into submission, I hope they did. I just hope they did. Applying what the Scripture says about, in my case, anger in my life, and not excusing it, not looking past it. They need to see me. Your children need to see you going to God for mercy and grace and His Word transforming you in your life. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind. The bad news is, is none of us, not one, loves God with all of our heart and soul and mind. None of us continue to do that. We've all, as the Bible says, as the Averse said, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's bad news. The worst news is that the penalty for neglecting God and His Word is eternal punishment. There's no exceptions. That's the bad news and the worst news. But the good news is that on our behalf, this God that has revealed Himself to us finally and ultimately revealed Himself to us in the person of His Son whom He sent to die to stand in our place to take our punishment. And you know what else He did? He loved God with all of His heart all the time with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. And, and he told us to do the same thing. We can't do it. But he did it on our behalf. That's good news. And he took the penalty on our behalf. That's good news too. But the best news 
is that anyone who will trust Jesus as Savior can have eternal life as a privileged child of God. Will that be you today? That's the best news that starts with the bad news, goes to the worst news, and the good news, and the best news. That's the best news I've heard all day. In the scripture, there was a young man who was suspicious of his father's desire and ability to give him the best. So he took off to pursue the best in his own way. He's called the prodigal, the prodigal son. And you all know the story. He ended up penniless and starving in a pigsty. And meanwhile, his father, who's the hero of the story, was waiting, longing for his son to return from his own failed quest. His father was waiting so that he could give him the best. The best robe, the best ring, the best sandals, the best party, the best status, the best love. You know, in this young man's story at the turning point in, in Luke uh, 15, 17, it says something out of there. It says he remembered his father. He remembered the goodness of his father. How his father provides the best, even for his servants, certainly for his children. And he went back where all the best was waiting for him. So I want to ask you, have you been on a quest for the best on your own? If you're honest, is that quest taking everything that you've got, giving you nothing? Are you hungry for the best for you and for your family? Remember your father. Remember his goodness. He's waiting and longing to give all his best to his children. So what does a return to the father look like? It's really pretty simple. It's turning your back on the lie of self-fulfillment and the self-centeredness that it demands. Confessing it is sin remembering His love for you, and committing again to love God with all your heart and soul and strength. There's a song that we sing that says, When I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey, when I look at it, when I measure it, such love, says the writer, demands my heart, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a father who is waiting. You are the God of the second chance. You are the God who, 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 who is waiting, Lord, for us to come to call on you so that you can give us your best, your way. We love you, Lord, today. I pray, Father, for all of us, Lord, if we, if we get one thing today that would be that it is your word, Lord, knowing it, living it, loving it, that establishes reverence for you. Impress that on our hearts today and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.